Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We are glad to see you. We have some exciting articles for you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, last week I made an effort to deliberately avoid anything that might remind us of the present situation. The nightmare world that we're living in, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, our new normal. This week I've decided instead to embrace it. So I've chosen a couple of links that at least have some bearing on our COVID-19 world. The first one is from VanityFair.com. It is the surprising and surprisingly contentious history of Purell, uh, an article by Dan Nosowitz. You know, the headline's a little juiced. I don't know what is particularly contentious. (laughs) Contentious in this case indicates that there are issues that occurred in which people were not in 100% harmony and alignment. So who makes Purell? Oh, I don't know. Is it? It's got to be like big Johnson co- & Johnson or something. Yeah, some big company. Big Pharma, right? Well, actually, it is made by a company called Gojo Industries. Gojo is a kind of conflation of the husband and wife team of Goldie and Jerome Lippman, who founded the company in 1946 in Akron, Ohio. And they their first product was Gojo Hand Cleaner, which is that, quote, industrial orange smelling stuff you still see in auto repair mm. shops and other mm-hmm. places that is mainly meant to cut through grease. But they founded this company in 1946 and eventually added to their line of products an alcohol-based hand sanitizer, which became Purell. Now, Have you guys seen that viral story that kind of gets passed around about how Purell was invented in Bakersfield by a student nurse named Lupe Hernandez? I have not seen that. That's that's a story, I guess, that's going around. That's a story that sometimes pops up as a celebration of the ingenuity of a working class woman of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, according to this article, there seems to be absolutely no real evidence of this story being true. It was first brought up in a 2012 article in The Guardian, and the author of this piece was not able to find any reference to this story or any any underlying evidence anywhere else. All citations simply led back to the Guardian piece. And when attempting to verify it with the author of the Guardian piece, the Guardian piece said, all my notes are locked in a storage unit and I'm trapped in Greece right now. (laughs) So, So could be true. As the author of this article observes, it's certainly possible that an invention by a Latinx nurse was simply ignored by a white medical power structure. If that's the case, the ignorance has been very thorough. I spent many hours trying to find a single mention of Lupe Hernandez prior to the Guardian article and came up empty. So uh, leaving some possibility that there's something unknown here, but it does seem to be an apocryphal story. The first major discovery of a non-water, non-soap cleaning agent dates to 1875 when Leonid Bokoltz of what is now the University of Tartu in Estonia discovered that ethanol had antiseptic properties, something that may have had a tradition 
Prior to that, there are records and indications of people using wine and other things to wash their hands, set back by the discovery that this was not a very effective antifungal. For this reason, soap and water continue to be preferred. Yeah, I feel like this article must have had like every paragraph or so, like a little disclaimer of like, but we're still saying everybody wash your hands. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It mentions about five or six times that, of course, <laughs> soap and water is a superior method. The big innovation that Gojo Industries made in 1998 was to add a thickening agent so that it was more manageable. Also has some ingredients in there that help to moisturize while sterilizing. Well, that's Um, nice. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Now, we have all had opportunities, I'm sure, to read multiple articles about the proper way to clean your hands. However, I'm sure you've seen that a lot of folks are trying to kind of break through with like artisanal variations on Purell, sort of more Instagram friendly Really? Uh, oh, see, what? this is this is comforting to me because the fact that I don't know these things says to me like, oh, you're doing a good job staying off the Internet. Like, <laughs> I feel like, oh, that's I, I've not seen any of these things. They're out there. I never let my eyes linger on them for more than a third of a second. <laughs> right. I will say I have seen a number of them that are like, here's how you make your own. But it's not in like a fancy artisanal Instagram way. It's like, oh, you don't have any and you're desperate. Here's how you can sort of like kludge it together, like the toilet wine of hand sanitizers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, right. Like isopropyl alcohol that has a high alcohol content, some aloe vera gel as a suspension and moisturizer, and maybe an essential oil, not for any therapeutic properties, but just to make it smell less like you slap together isopropyl alcohol and (laughs) aloe vera gel, right? Delicious. Yeah. Mm. And I'm sure that uh, all of the solutions out there that are available are some variation of that basic homemade recipe. So if if Gojo owns Purell at this point, that means they're not a public company. They must be just like raking in the dough. They are extremely busy. Apparently, they (laughs) uh, were, were very limited in their ability to get back at the author of this article with any comment. But they do have a plan that was put into place specifically for, you know, a kind of pandemic situation where the demand for Purell would spike. They are doing their best to keep up, but best bet carry around a, a little bit of soap and some water to give your hands a quick wash out in the world. And if you have to go outside. Yeah, for the most part, just stay in and keep the soap in your house. Yes, 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 indeed. Go only to the grocery store. In fact, actually, don't go to the grocery store. <laughs> uh, there's eat a lot Purell. of stuff you it's can- tasty. If tasty. Even if you're out of groceries, there's a lot of stuff you can probably eat in your house that you're not thinking about. Um, oh, wow. I look forward to reading that article once it goes viral and makes headlines for things people are eating in their house because they're <laughs> you, not going to the grocery store. If you throw a paperback book in a pot of water- Oh, that'll soften right Add a right dash up. of salt. Yeah. That'll fill your stomach. Just make I, yourself I a little- I am ready for that stage of this pandemic. <laughs> make yourself a little paper soup. Oh, God. One of the most depressing things I ever read was, you, you remember uh, in the magazine Harper's, how in the front pages, they have the Harper's Index, which are just selections from various sources and things. Once they had an excerpt of a recipe book that was prepared for Russian folks who were trying to survive during the siege of Stalingrad. Oh, no. And it was basically a book on like how to cook your pets or other things around the house. It was like, it was like, okay, here's how to cook a dog, how to cook a cat. And then it was, and then it it was, then it was like, 
how to cook your belt. Yeah, yeah. Well, because that's uh, that's the thing I've read about is like cities that were under siege or something. They started eating their shoes because it's leather, which is, you know, skin. But you had to like boil it a certain way to get the glue off because the glue was uh, toxic. So they were like, make sure that you don't harm yourself while eating your shoe. <laughs> uh, uh, we laugh about it now, but I'm going to just put that the furthest recesses that's of my right. brain. That's just not Ugh. think about it. All right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Hey, you guys remember hotels, right? Hotels? I have a vague memory. Yeah. Yeah. I think I know <laughs> what they're about. Well, The Guardian has a great article by Renee Chun called Hotel Thieves Aren't Stealing Toiletries, But Framed Art, TVs, A Fireplace. How do you steal a fireplace? Oh, man. Let me tell you. Please so, do. App- <laughs> apparently, there's an investigative journalist named Peter Greenberg. He has a site the travel detective. And he's basically kind of like the de facto authority on people who have been stealing big ticket items from hotels for years. And apparently this is a huge problem that we don't hear about in part because it makes bad publicity for the hotels that actually call attention to this. And most often it's the really she-she five-star fancy pants hotels that are the ones getting heisted to this degree. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So for example, a guest at the Beverly Hills Wilshire stole a marble fireplace. He basically cut it out of the wall with a chisel, and a bellboy <laughs> even helped load the pieces into the truck. Did it? I what? mean, were they packaged in disguise? Did he know what he was doing? Well, in this particular case, they didn't get into details, but for some of these larger items, what happens is people will go in and say that they're artists, basically. And so they've got these crates that they say are full of art that they're going to be, you know, showing around town or taking to galleries. So that's that's their cover, basically. They're like, this is why I'm bringing huge wooden crates up to my room is because I'm an artist. Yep, that's at least one example of how these go on. But because these are so underreported for fear of bad publicity, a lot of it is still kind of like, meh. I mean, obviously, some of the things that are taken out just are packaged back into luggage. But things even like super fancy mattresses and duvets, like sometimes people will bring in their own crappy comforter from their house and, you know, stuff it into the nice duvet and take the goose feather down (laughs) back home in the same way that they've done it. but. Yeah, apparently luxury hotel larceny is on the rise, or at least was in the before days. Mattress theft was up 35% compared to a 2017 survey. They've also taken things like Tesla power chargers, a four meter wide film projection screen, and a swimsuit dryer, which prior to this article, I didn't even know was a thing. Yeah, I think I have heard of those, but they're like at beach houses or something. Yeah, there's one in the the locker room at the Y, I think. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, at the Y, it's less likely for these things to get pilfered because they tend to have higher foot traffic than some of these boutique hotels. Like in Europe, the boutique hotels are particularly vulnerable. They don't often staff their reception desk 24-7. They close late in the evening, sometimes especially with these really fancy hotels, they even give you sort of like an all-access key so you can get in whenever you want because you're a very important rich person. You know, you have your own timetable that you need to stick to. You're out inking deals till two in the morning over cocktails. You don't need some staff member letting you in. Exactly. We're not here to cramp your style. And digital security is even spottier because, you know, a lot of hoteliers refrain from installing cameras due to privacy concerns. 
In Germany, for instance, it's forbidden to place cameras in public spaces like the driveway in front of a hotel entrance. So there are a lot of gaps and holes that make this super feasible for a lot of folks. Is stealing fancy stuff from an expensive hotel, is this like a sport for rich people? Like, is this some Thomas Crown affair type stuff? Like, <laughs> like, do you think there's like some kind of sporting competition amongst the members of the jet setting elite about stealing the biggest and most elaborate thing they can from luxury hotel? Uh, you because- know, in underground circles, I'm sure that there is some kind of competition or at least, you know, names that are passed around. But in the case of the one that took like that, that whole artist who checks in with the shipping crate for the gallery or whatever, there's a particular quote unquote artist that's still unnamed and unidentified. At large. Yeah. And they've worked the five star circuit in South America for years and nobody knows who they are. Maybe this is my own naivete, but I always just kind of figured, well, if you steal from a hotel, I mean, don't they know because they come clean up your room. They know who the last person in the room was. Yeah, but I mean, you know, furnishing a fake name or having fake credentials or right, a credit sure. card that yeah, was yeah. done through identity theft. I mean, there are so many different moving parts to this that make it particularly difficult. And again, they're very reticent to actually file any charges because it could harm their own reputation as a boutique luxury hotel. This article almost feels like an instruction manual. Like I never would have thought, <laughs> oh, okay, I need to pretend to be an artist and check in with crates. Like that wouldn't, that level of planning would not have occurred to me, which is why I obviously don't steal things from a hotel. I would get caught. But I mean, that has actually occurred to me because I really enjoy heist movies. And I I really enjoyed that network TV show White Collar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which basically follows around someone who does a lot of white collar crime. They explain how they do it. I mean, I've always been fascinated with that kind of stuff. Not necessarily as a blueprint for my own behavior. Of course not. No. uh, You know, we're not advocating anything here. But the article's careful to close on a note that says, look, if you want this stuff, you can just ask the concierge where they source this, right? Like the guy, Peter Greenberg, who is this investigative travel journalist, he has, you know, acquired a taste for some of the finer fixtures in the hotels that he stayed in, but he's paid for all of them, right? So he's got a custom Sealy mattress made for the Four Seasons that he paid for on his own, has in his home. He's also got a nice 16-inch ceiling-mounted shower head that he found at the London Savoy Hotel that he had to have but paid for. So, you know, if you like these things the next time you go to a hotel because we're allowed to do that again, you know, you can always kind of have an inspiration list without having to resort to larceny. See, I am, I, I know ah. I am just way too cynical because I'm listening to this going, no, 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 this is the guy. This is the artist. Like he's getting off, <laughs> not just on stealing it, but on like putting his method out there and taunting everybody and being just like, this is how the guy did it. Let me detail it exactly. We don't know who he is. <laughs> it's quite the cover, isn't it? I mean, as far as being very devious to cover one's tracks by being completely out in the open, mm-hmm. that, that certainly would be an interesting uh, thread to follow. I will say uh, if we end up in a situation where hotels are being commandeered for isolated COVID patients, if you are mm-hmm. in that situation and you find that there's something nice you could go home with, you know what? You've been through a lot, so help yourself. <laughs> Curtis openly yeah, but- advocating theft here. You might as well <laughs> go home with uh, go home with a terry cloth bathrobe. Oh, this is getting anarchic super fast. Angie, I, know, I, I think know. we found the guy who's been going in with the uh, artist crates. <laughs> Curtis, you're you're an artist, right? I, I don't you even do theater well, and performance art, don't you, I, Curtis? I don't even take the 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 soaps, man. I, I just <laughs> I, I I like to travel light. I it's just what now I have what more small soap. That's right. Yeah, now. That's a th- excellent cover story. I believe it a hundred percent. Next link. 
Next link. So I'm sure you guys have heard about The Tiger King, the new documentary series about the crazy... I can't seem to get away from it. Everyone seems to be watching it, but it holds zero interest for me. Even People love friends. The Tiger King. Have you seen it, Curtis? I have not. I've uh, only heard a lot of talk about it. It seems like the latest manifestation of like the Florida man joke, right. which is like, yeah, I, I mean, like, he's it just seems like what do we need another sociopath doing wacky stuff that we need to follow his antics about right now? Well, it he... seems to be it's the thing, right? Isn't that like the main form of like middle class entertainment now? It's like, here's the new podcast slash Netflix documentary about some psychopathic nut somewhere. <laughs> Right. Well, we are all of a similar mindset because I also have not watched it very deliberately. I've said, you know, I emotionally am not capable of watching animals get tortured right now. But there is hope out there for people who don't want to watch it, but sort of kind of want to get the good parts of it. Some tiger content. There is uh, an article on Long Reads, which goes into more of the story of Carol Baskin who is the Tiger King's nemesis. And she, yeah. So so I obviously, I learned a little bit about it from reading this article. The basic rundown of the story is he's a terrible dude. He breeds these animals. He sells them. He makes money, but he's awful to the animals. And his nemesis is this woman who has been trying to make it illegal to have big cats. She's basically trying to stop this horrible torture of animals. And he tried to take out a hitman. And that's actually, it found out that was an accidental part of the documentary. When they started the documentary, they were just trying to profile this dude. And as they were filming and doing interviews, he was brought up on charges and they're like, wait, what? Tell us the rest of the story. And so they got to follow that whole aspect of the story without even knowing it was coming. But Carol Baskin is, she, she's, quote, the good guy, except only sort of. Like, she has her own kind of maybe shady background. <laughs> she has a husband who just up and disappeared one day. And right. the general this- scuttlebutt on the internet is, oh, either she killed him or he died by accident and her big cats ate him. Because she does have also big cats of her own. Oh, for heaven's sake. But she runs it on like a really big free-range conservatory kind of thing. She's not breeding them. She's rescuing them from abusive situations and just sort of letting them roam free on her property. If you had access to tigers, it'd be tempting to feed someone to one of those tigers. Yeah, if you had to dispose of a body, it's a pretty good way to do it. But... Yeah. But I mean, that's the slippery slope. Once you have a good way to dispose of a body, you're going to start looking that's right. for you need some extra a reason to want to dispose <laughs> a body, you know? Oh, my goodness. Whether or not the uh, suspicious circumstances of her late missing husband, uh, she does seem to be doing good things now. Her big push, of course, is through legislation. In 2003, she got a bill unanimously passed called the Captive Wildlife Safety Act, which barred the sale of big cats as pets across state lines. Which, on the one hand, is like, that's good, but it had a bunch of loopholes. And, of course, if you don't cross state lines, you're not causing a problem. But it was this piece of legislation that first made the Tiger King, Joe Exotic, sort of get mad at her. And they started going head to head. So now he's in jail. She sort of realized this first piece of legislation didn't do a lot of good. So now she's working on the Big Cat Public Safety Act, which is going to ban all public contact with big cats. And it is last year it made it out of the Committee on Natural Resources and a bipartisan vote and could soon head to the House floor where it's got broad support. And especially now with this documentary, people are sort of more aware of this. And it's kind of like a blackfish moment, you know, that documentary where everyone suddenly became aware of what SeaWorld was doing to their orcas. Mm, This is sort of the moment where everyone's like, oh, yeah, we should pass this bill. This is important. But the key thing about this bill and, and the thing that she really kind of is pushing for is it stops a practice known as cub petting. 
which is this feature at zoos where people will pay to go play with tiger cubs, right? Because at cub size, they're not really dangerous. You can pay 100 bucks or whatever, get in there and pet them for 10 minutes. And she would see this going on at her local zoo. And then she'd go back next year and be like, well, where are all the adolescent tigers? Because you had 20 tiger cubs a year ago. Where did they all go? And they're like, um, well, and they were very cagey and vague and didn't want to talk about it. And eventually some of them sort of admitted, oh, well, we're selling them. And that's what contributes to this problem. And so her mm. her thinking is, if we can end cub petting, that completely disincentivizes the breeding of mm -hmm. these animals. And then you don't have all these people who were idiots who played with a cub for 10 minutes and said, oh, I should have a tiger as a pet. And then two years down the line, they're paying, you know, $5,000 a year in meat to feed it. And then it's killing people. And, <laughs> and it's a problem. And so the big turning point for her, because she's been trying to do this ever since like maybe a year after the first bill passed and it was apparent that it really wasn't doing much. She's been trying again to get this second bill going. And the turning point for its effectiveness was that she had been focusing on this sort of conservation care of the animals angle. Like, oh, look at these poor tigers. People are torturing them. It's not OK. But in 2014, she hired a top Republican lobbying firm and they said, no, 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 we're going to frame this to lawmakers as a public safety issue. And they dug up a case where in Zanesville, Ohio, an exotic animal owner named Terry Thompson opened the doors to all his cages and then committed suicide. And all of the animals ran through the town and it left police. They had to go around town and hunt 18 tigers, 17 oh. lions, three mountain lions, several bears, a baboon and several wolves. And, Good Lord. and the animals never ended up hurting anybody. Like they managed to, they knew almost immediately what had happened. They got them all rounded up. But at the time, of course, everybody living in this town was terrified. And they had said, everybody has to stay indoors until we've got a full count of all these creatures. And so they've been using that as sort of their key moment of, look, you don't want this to happen again. We got to stop people like the Tiger King from having these creatures because <laughs> clearly they are mentally unstable. You could absolutely see Joe Exotic doing the same thing. And with that framing, it has actually gotten huge support among Republican lawmakers who, of course, Carol Baskin is like, they don't give a crap about the cats, but I don't care because it's going to get this law passed. <laughs> she seems to be doing some good. And she, you know, it seems like the law is going to get passed. And that's a good thing. So I applaud your optimism in the face <laughs> of that whole story. It's uh way yeah. to grasp at that silver lining. man. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was it's uh, it's it's not uh, nearly hard enough to get your hands on a tiger. As it turns out. No, it really isn't. She was talking about how, you know, you have to get like a license to get a dog in a whole bunch of states. And in the most states, like it's not regulated at all. You can just have a tiger and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Declare yourself their king. That's right. Apparently you can. Build up an army. As long as you live in Florida. <laughs> do you think there's anyone out there, you know, putting on Tiger King, thinking that it is the Lion King and, uh, <laughs> and just kind of being like, I don't know, this this doesn't seem like it's for kids. That's right. Like absent-minded grandma, she's trying to babysit and she just turns it on and walks away and the kids are traumatized. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, he looks like a pro wrestler circa the <laughs> 80s. If that's not enough to tip you off, they've got those, you know, like splash trailers that run. Come on. He's got that mustache. Am I going to have to watch this thing now because no. of this? I don't know. It, I tell you what, if you read the article, you get a pretty good overview. It's a, it, like it said, it's from Long Reads and it is a long read and it goes through most of the basic plot 
without forcing you to see the images of these animals and really I, you don't have to bask quite as much in the, the nastiness. That sounds good. I know this is a very self-defeating thing to say since we are currently recording a podcast, <laughs> but a lot of times there will be a movie or a TV show and I'll just kind of be like, I don't know. That just sounds like a podcast. <laughs> like, <laughs> a lot of them are very quality, but it's like, which one? It's like, oh, should I listen to the one about like the psychiatrist who's gaslighting and like slowly poisoning his patients? Or should I watch the one about the weird tiger guy? Or should I <laughs> or should I read the book about the lady billionaire and her fake blood testing company? It's just like <laughs> it's just yeah. like via the medium of podcasting and TV documentaries, we're building this thousands deep rogues gallery. And I just, I don't know who I should get into. I, I, I don't know how to get my feet wet with these true crime podcasts. Well, as long as you don't decide, you know what I really need is to be featured on one of these. I go. <laughs> <laughs> the podcaster serial killer who only murders true crime podcasters. That's got <laughs> hit podcast written all over it. So meta. So meta. <laughs> Too meta, maybe. All oh, right. God. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. So. Again, continuing our theme of things that are somewhat on topic. This is from The Guardian. Underground skyscrapers and off-grid bunkers inside the world of preppers. Oh, uh, relevant. Do you, do you guys have yeah. prepping instincts? Because I find I do. I don't actually do it. But there's a part of me that's like, oh, yeah, if I had a compound... Like, I would be super good at it. Yeah, for me, it's more homesteading instinct versus prepper instincts. And there was a great article, I can't remember, that wasn't part of our lineup that kind of looked into how what's currently happening kind of dissolves the whole male machismo prepper fantasy that tends to be really dominant in those narratives versus like no collective healers as heroes, mass society, unrelated, but yeah. Right. Probably the best thing anyone could do in terms of being prepped would be to simply figure out how to grow a small vegetable garden. Right. But uh, yeah, that's not where a lot of energy and effort goes. There's a lot of manly hoarding. As this article gets into, it, the article's by Stuart Jeffries and is largely an interview with a guy named Bradley Garrett who is a, a geographer and urban explorer who's gotten into various things and written various books over the years. His most recent book is called Bunker, Preparing for the End Times, which he's been researching for the past four years, looking into various different types of doomsday preppers and communities and different types of bunkers. Yeah, there's like whole conventions for them now, right? Like you can go and buy your materials, like you can buy your underground prefab bunker and all you got to do is bury it. Yeah, mm -hmm. one big category is the, you know, sort of wealthy luxury prepper. Luxury being a somewhat fungible term under these circumstances, but the article talks about, you know, the former central government war headquarters, which is a 35 acre Cold War bunker in the UK outside Bath. It had 60 miles of roads, 100,000 lights, sleeping quarters, bombproof radio station, laundries, drinking water, a library. But in 2016, the whole thing was put on sale for 1.5 million pounds. Huh. He just decided he didn't and, need it anymore. Well, the government, uh, yeah, decided they didn't need it anymore. And a <laughs> lot of these, you know, former Cold War 
missile silos, bomb shelters, things like that have been acquired by investors who have converted them into luxury survival condos. Nice. Mm. Uh, An example, Larry Hall. He's a businessman who bought a 60-meter Cold War silo in Kansas. He bought it for $300,000 and transformed it into a sort of inverted skyscraper called the survival condo, where 75 individuals can weather a maximum of five years inside half floor apartments cost 1.5 million full floor apartments are 3 million there's a 335 square meter two-story penthouse that has sold for four and a half million one of the owners created a year-long film of the view from her manhattan loft apartment over central park just so she could have a view Gosh. (laughs) So that she can project it. If she ends up having to stick it out in her survival condo, she will have a film. You got to prioritize what's important. Here's my, honestly, I feel like my major concern, if we're in a full-on apocalyptic meltdown of society, my own survival matters slightly less to me than if there are people out there who have just bought into some kind of luxury survival scheme. We need to catch some of those people before they get to their (laughs) condo. I'm going to be so annoyed if we let them all get to their condos. We got to catch at least half of them and eat them. I think the whole thing is, is a little bit ridiculous because when push comes to shove, your little deed paper that says, no, no, 10 years ago, I paid $3 million for the floor on this condo. It's not going to mean squat. You can show up all you want. They're not going to let you in because they'll have decided, oh, guess what? This guy has a whole bunch of antibiotics. We're going to give that apartment to him because he's got something in trade. Like when the world really goes to hell, you're not going to have any of these conventions of like, oh, I bought this, so it's mine now. Like that's done. All of that's gone. Well, I think that's why the people who invest in these uh, luxury survival condos are probably also investing in drones with machine guns <laughs> attached. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I actually I, I read in a separate article once there was uh, I forget who it was an interview with, but he met with a group of ultra wealthy people who were preppers and like they were trying to like brainstorm with him. It's like, OK, well, how are we going to pay our private soldiers, you know, after money loses? value right when there is no economy it's like what do we need we need seeds we need gold or you know it's it's like what what do we need to do so so believe me like the ultra wealthy are not leaving out the need to uh, hire a private army for their plans for the post-apocalyptic period but uh, garrett goes on to talk about different types of preppers he met with of course one of the big distinctions called out here is between the prep steaders and other types of preppers the prep steaders are very disdainful of folks who think they're going to, you know, buy their way out of the apocalypse and emphasize things like learning to grow your own community garden, which is a, a very nice thing to do, even in a non-apocalypse situation. Mm-hmm. So so good way to invest your time and effort if you're concerned about the absolute breakdown of society. Yeah, to, but uh, it lacks all of that sexy, toxic masculine violence that seems to be a huge selling point of the narrative based on like, you know, the conventions, the products themselves, the celebrity tie-ins and the entertainment shows that are based off of that. That's true, although a lot of the prep setters do also emphasize the importance of uh, learning how to shoot someone <laughs> from, from long range. I mean, it, you know, there, there's still some pioneer frontier thinking going on in that community. 
Uh, I, so I, I think there's two divisions there. There's like the macho violence-based prepping versus the more nurturing domestic. And then there's the distinction between like people whose like version of prepping is like, well, you know, I'm going to buy myself some security versus acquiring skills. A final quote in this that made me raise my eyebrows was uh, Garrett saying, we're all familiar with dread, aren't we? Well, dread is unbearable because it has no object. So you can't do anything about it. Overcoming the dread is what it's about. When we give shape to the things we dread, we make them manageable. That's, I guess, true. But another way of thinking of that is when you give shape to the things you dread, you're you're also just trying to convert your own fear of death, which is inevitable, into a conquerable object that mm-hmm. can be subdued by your obsessive fixation on preparing for contingencies that are more likely to overpower you. I mean, death, we all know it's bad. What a bad <laughs> thing. Uh, but yeah, at a certain point, you you kind of cross over from being prepared to trying to just conquer death. And uh, the thing is, you will die, you know. <laughs> Public service announcement. We want everyone to if know. You die- <laughs> And if you die in the apocalypse, you know, at least you got to die in the apocalypse. Like you made it to the end of the book. That's right. For crying out loud. That's a you nice know? way to look at it. That's that's something that billions and billions <laughs> of dead people cannot claim is that they made it to the end of the story. <laughs> so, you know, so we're, maybe look on the bright side about it. We're all just full of unbridled optimism. I think that the tiger cubs are not going to get pet anymore. You think that, hey, if you made it to the apocalypse, you win. Like, it's, you know. It's it's a, a nice and happy, bubbly feeling here today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We are glad you've joined us. We hope that you keep listening and that we've been able to provide some interest and some levity into these days of unending boredom punctured by horrible information that none of us want to hear. If you want to help support us and keep us on the air providing interesting information for you, you can go to www.patreon.com slash week. Buy us a cup of coffee. Let us know that you like the job we're doing. There are, of course, many articles that we did not get to today. Some of those articles on DamnInteresting.com include Neanderthals Really Liked Seafood, How to See the World's Reflection from a Bag of Chips, and Astrophysicist Gets Magnets Stuck Up Nose While Inventing Coronavirus Device. So those and more can be found online. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.